Hey, so the following episode of Zon in Canada is the Sailor Moon Retrospective. It's in two parts. The first is a roundtable discussion about the series. The second is an interview with Roland Parliament, the ADR director for most of the original Deke dub. Just a quick heads up if you haven't heard, Classic Sailor Moon is finally legally streaming in Canada for free. You can find all 200 episodes of the series in Japanese with English subtitles on Tubi TV. This episode was recorded before this was announced, which means that the topic of Viz not making the series available in Canada is featured quite prominently. However, the points raised are integral to the conversation, and most of them are, in my opinion, still very much relevant. As such, all those references have been left intact. So, with that out of the way, please enjoy the show! Welcome to Zon and Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. This is going to be the second uh, in our series of retrospectives on anime that have had a unique cultural impact in Canada. This time we're focusing on Sailor Moon, which is probably the show that will most commonly come to mind for just about anyone when you think of anime that has had a specific cultural impact in Canada. Uh, joining me today are two voices that I'm sure you're familiar with by now. Randy Forbister is back. Hello. As well as Aaron Dearden. What's up? So in our previous episode, we talked about Inuyasha. I really tried earnestly to avoid focusing on nostalgia uh, in that particular episode, and that proved to be completely futile. Uh, <laughs> just about every bit of relevance that we were able to wring out of that show uh, turned out to be rooted in personal nostalgia. Uh, but it was, you know, there was kind of a consensus about certain things that we remembered and why it was important to us. Um, and I, I think that there's no question that, that is also the case with most people, with most people when it comes to Sailor Moon, there's definitely a, a communal appreciation rooted in nostalgia that we all share, acknowledge, understand. I don't think there's any question that, that, that is there. Um, what I'm going to, what we're going to kind of throw onto the table in this episode is the idea of whether or not that very specific kind of Canada or Canadian nostalgia for the show is still relevant, if it's still important, um, if it has an impact on where the where the franchise is now in the English-speaking world. Um, but I guess we'll just start off with sort of our own personal relationships uh, with the shows. So, um, uh, Aaron, maybe we'll start with you. What has your personal relationship with Sailor Moon been like over the years? I mean, do you think it's is it typical for most people your age in Canada or with with most modern anime fans? I mean, what do you have to 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 say about that? I think it's it's probably fairly typical, but I would still characterize it as monumental. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much the reason I'm an anime fan. It's the reason I know what anime is. Um, <laughs> I even as at a young age, had a tendency to get extremely obsessed with something when I liked it. Um, and Sailor Moon was no exception. I think I was interested from the very first commercial I saw for it um, on YTV back in the day. I was like, my, my sensors kind of perked up. I was like, this seems interesting. This seems different. What is this? Why are they sailors? <laughs> so I tuned in and I pretty much watched every episode that I could. I think even there was a point where I was like, 
trying to fake sick every week so that I could go home in time to watch the episode if I couldn't tape it properly. Even as a um, kid, it's difficult to follow that kind of heavy serialization on a on a daily basis. Right. And yeah. it's not as if it was always so heavily serialized. Yeah, exactly. There were episodic periods too, yeah. but clearly there were also story periods. And I think I was I was extremely frustrated the one time where I think uh, my best friend at the time had been able to see the oh my god spoilers for a 10 20 year old show <laughs> the the episode where serena turns into princess serenity for the first time and i was so so jealous and i think i probably kicked him or something <laughs> <for> seeing <laughs> it before me um so yes um uh, i think the it led me to anime specifically uh because the internet was also sort of a nascent thing at the time and we were kind of um an early adopter i guess i would say because my mom was in publishing and she got access to the internet and computers on uh, through her work in that way. So I found um, a lot of Sailor Moon information sort of through the early internet in those days and sort of learned about the fact that it wasn't originally in English. It was a Japanese property. Um, I learned about the fact that Japan had animation other than this. Um, and I think around this time, um, my mom also bought me a copy of the, uh, the, is it the Complete Anime Guide, I believe it is? Um, it was the the book that Trish Ledoux wrote back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, I poured over that thing, over the little, like, pixelated gray images of all these titles that I'd never heard of before, uh, just wondering what they all were. And it kind of bran- led me to branch out from there. And and when uh, a few years later, obviously, um, Sailor Moon sort of hit in multiple phases on, at least on television. We had like mm-hmm. the, the original 65 episode run from 95. And then a few years later, there were the there was the rest of R, uh, which uh, we'll I'll get into a little more in a bit. And then a few years later, we had the dubs for for S and Supers, which I've always kind of figured was geared more towards an American audience because this was after the show had started running on Toonami and finally sort of caught on in a widespread way in the United States. Mm-hmm. When though, I, I'm kind of curious when like four, four, four or four and a half years later, when those episodes finally went up on YTV, I mean, where, where were you with the franchise then was the TV airing still relevant to you or had you just sort of moved on to the, the higher level of, of anime fandom? I definitely had moved on by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, I feel like I skipped over the the last bit of R because I don't remember seeing many episodes of it. Um, and I saw a little bit of the Cloverway dub, but I don't think it was on at a very convenient time for me. For whatever reason, I'm not sure I didn't see it very much. I think I was much more focused on trying to get into the Japanese side of things. I remember a lot more like going through the process of uh, getting fan subs and whatnot. I, I managed to meet with VKLL, who was one of the original Sailor Moon fan mm-hmm. subbers that everyone used, and he happened to live in Calgary, so I went over to his house, like, teenage girl going over to an older man's house. Oh, that doesn't <laughs> sound sketchy at all, <laughs> to pick up a whole bunch of VHS tapes. <laughs> and that's how I saw um, Sailor Moon stars before I saw the majority of any of the other seasons. Well, stars was... read about the other seasons for the most part. Stars was always the, the big deal in the, in the, fa- in the fan sub community. Um, but yeah, that's, it's weird because like everybody, I, th- I think the U.S. fandom in particular is a lot more put off by the the Cloverway period than I think a lot of Canadian fans are. Maybe because they felt kind of like they missed out on the first period 
Uh, whereas the by the time the Cloverway stuff hit, I was already deep into the the Sailor Moon fandom, and I knew about all this stuff, and I didn't really. It, it was it wasn't new information other than the fact that all the names had changed and they had done the cousins thing. Um, so I wasn't as interested in it when it actually started airing. Yeah, the the persistence of uh, Uranus and Neptune being cousins like that that whole complaint seems to be better remembered than any other aspect of the uh, the Cloverway dub for sure. Mm-hmm. So Randy, w- what about you? What has been your sort of experience with Sailor Moon over the years that it's rolled out uh, in in uh, both just popular and, and anime culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, I got into it really, really early. It's, it aired on uh, a local uh, channel. Uh, it was MTN at the time. Uh, and it was part of their, uh, I think, either their morning or after school block uh, when it was first, when I, when I first got wind of it. And I watched that right away uh i guess i was always kind of in the looking for something that was like narrative based and seeing this show that was not like uh most of the cartoons that were out there seeing the show that actually had a a plot that changed and added characters that would then stay there from then on and had like these big uh arcs like like the the nephlite arc and uh as you get to finding out princess Ser- princess serena and all that stuff uh, it kind of just struck me as like, oh, this show has stakes and this show has plot developments. And that's not something that you got, really got in cartoons. That was something that always was like in movies that you would watch or something. Uh, so seeing this show with characters that would actually move forward was was different. And that's something that I immediately attached to. Uh, I was in third grade at the time. Uh, and I had some friends who were also on the block with me. And uh, they were both girls, and they got super into the uh, the cards that were coming out, and they would go to the uh, like local like Asian market stores to get the new cards as they came out, and they just got really deep in that too, and that kind of just um, came on like that just uh, bled onto me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I guess is the best way to say that. Like uh, th- their enthusiasm got to me, and then I got very enthusiastic yeah. about it. And I was very much into that. Um, it was also the first show that I, that I knew was was Japanese, uh, also because of a YTV program, uh, Anti Gravity Room, which had a segment on Sailor Moon where they actually like looked at the comics and like had I believe they had an interview with the creator or if not someone at Viz who was doing the comics and translating them, and they had a whole segment about that. And that's when I learned, oh, this is this is why this isn't the same as everything else. This is why there's there's plot because this is from a a source and it's being transferred right onto the tv and that just struck a nerve in me too and it made me in the future look out for that kind of stuff and i would look out for for japanese inspired stuff like uh dragon ball i got into then and then of course dragon ball z pokemon digimon yada 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 um but like it it all came down to sailor moon and and how it really hit something that i wasn't really didn't know I wanted, but once I got it, that's that's all I really wanted for it. And did did your relationship with the show changed at, as it was being rolled out, like in the you know the early phase and the later half of of R and then the the S and Supers Cloverway dub? Yeah, it, it certainly did. Um, as as I got older, like liking girly shows wasn't wasn't cool anymore. Uh, and the cool like new hotness was Dragon Ball Z and and all that stuff, and that's what 
dominated playground discussion. So I just kind of like, just as a matter of what was happening around me, I just went to lots of the more boy focused shows. Uh, but I still always like Sailor Moon uh, in the background. And like, I would always watch it when it came on, but it was not really a priority. And then by the time uh, S and Supers came out, I was, I had already moved on to like, I was reading uh, Shonen Jump had come up by then, I believe. And I was had a subscription to that, and I was reading that every week. Uh, I had access to Cartoon Network, so I started watching like um, the anime that was on there as it started airing. And and as I did that, I just got more into anime fandom and less about what was on TV strictly. And so when S and Supers came out and the Cloverboy dub came out, I was uh, I, I really couldn't do anything more than than scoff at it and. Because I I really don't like that Cloverway dub. I think I think <laughs> <laughs> like uh, it really just the tone changed way too much, uh, and like it turned from being its own thing. The dub was its own thing, and it turned into trying to stick too close to the Japanese scripts while still trying to also be an old Deke script. And it just the clashing between the two uh, ended up not working. I don't think they. The the acting went down as well. Um, the the new Serena, I I was never a big fan of hers. I I thought that she was incredibly mismatched for the voice, and I still do to this day. Yeah, L- uh, Linda Ballantyne, I think generally not well remembered as a Sailor Moon voice. I think her, the, the biggest criticism people level at her is that she tried too hard to imitate Terry Hawks, and it just it just didn't mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just remember her tone being off, like so, some kind of. It, it was a little too low and forced compared yeah. to the na- more naturally light tone like the characters seem to have had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and actually, like I was at a uh, at our last local convention, uh, Terry Hawks w- was was a guest, and when I was sitting in her panel and hearing her talk, uh, just like the way she would say like tuxedo mask or the way she would say Darian, uh, just like it, it sounded like like serena was talking like but like a most much older version and then like just like that natural way of talking uh for the deke dub didn't didn't transfer to the cloverway dub when linda valentine took over yeah the the cloverway sailor moon as a localized like a, as a localized version of a of an anime is kind of a unique has this we- really as a really unique kind of balance because you have like changed names and they would and they would you know uh digitally replace signs and um oftentimes flip over or or, um horizontally flip images of cars and buses to make it uh look like people are driving on the other side of the road and on the other side of the vehicle uh to to make it look more western but at the same time they would never downplay the fact that the show was set in japan Mm -hmm. uh, and they would always explicitly mention that it's in tokyo uh and it's interesting when you can like how um somehow that balance still managed to work in the older deke episodes and yet everything things were just a little bit off in uh in in those cloverway episodes yeah. uh with you know with the attempt on one hand trying to make it sort of authentic and and accurate to the original but on the other mm-hmm. hand still trying to to squeeze out some localization and usually picking some very questionable ways to do it <laughs> yeah um, i i kind of feel like the the original Sailor Moon dub and shows that came out around that time was probably kind of the last period where you could sincerely make a dub like that that wasn't explicitly targeted at five-year-olds. Um, because there wasn't as much 
knowledge about what anime was and not as much demand for the original product. It probably wasn't until the big Tokyo pop boom that people started to to call for that more. And Cloverway only kind of half-heartedly responded to that, and people really didn't take well to that. Mm-hmm. And, and like the script writing in those later seasons was was not great. Um, I had a friend who was uh, who got pretty into it in in high school, and he was he paid attention to the to the virus, and he noticed that like there were like he could see three different writing styles. One writer stayed really really faithful to the to the way the script was. One writer went the complete opposite direction and added so much unnecessary slang uh, of, of the early aughts. That Go was, bleach that, your roots, creep. That, that was that was ridiculous. Like there, there's an episode I was trying to find it earlier, um, but uh, Chippy Moon has has a crush on a boy, and they're talking about it, and and um, I think uh, Venus says like, "I bet he thinks you're fly." And there's also like, like, like you got to be tripping. Uh, just oh like my ridiculous, god! Ridiculous. <laughs> this early, is how kids talk, slang. right? Yeah. And it was it be, that episode becomes really hilarious uh, in context of just like what were they thinking? Uh, but in general, like like that writing is just not great. And I don't know what the writers they were trying to do. Um, in the Deke, the writers, I think, like their idea was like this is. A cartoon we're gonna make this a cartoon and we're gonna make this as as natural as we can while keeping the story plot and i don't think the clover dub did that nearly as much yeah I, this is bringing to mind uh the another interview with the, i think roland parliament that i heard in the past and he commented a lot on the fact that the voices were very much requested to be as different as possible so you could distinguish characters very easily just by hearing them, not necessarily just by seeing them. And I think that's another issue with the Cloverway dub is a lot of the voices sound too similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Deke dub had <laughs> went out of its way, way out of its way sometimes to make characters sound very different from one another. So you had the, the high-pitched Serena and the, the faux Brooklyn Molly and the, <laughs> the suit, the British old lady luna and slightly less british amy um sort of br- uh brush lita and so on and so on mm-hmm. uh funny story that was actually my question that i sent to ancast uh, oh nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> well sorry sorry to repeat that then yeah i can edit it out this is okay <laughs> <laughs> um i i will say that despite the the dodgy nature of that uh cloverway dub it actually it is the only, still the only way that I have watched Sailor Moon S so far. I didn't bother with Supers. I, by the time it aired in Canada, I had heard so many bad things about it, uh, from people complaining about the Cartoon Network broadcast of that series that I just didn't bother. But I watched most of S. And, well, I, I mean, going back, I watched the show religiously when I was a kid, about eight or nine, during the original 65 episode run. I was, obviously, my, my male friends my age kind of laughed at me about it, but, uh, I still was like unabashedly a fan of the show, and it, interestingly, most of the people I knew who liked it were actually boys who were a little younger than me. Um, we all kind so this of. This is sorry to interrupt you. Actually, continue first, and then I'll tell you my thought. Uh, okay. Um, and then you know there was that about two year gap between the end of the sixty five episodes and then when the final sixteen episodes of of R aired on YTV. Um, 
I, I, I always hate to admit this, but I actually never saw the original run of those 16 episodes just because it hit during that time when I didn't really want to watch something like Sailor Moon anymore. Um, or rather, it, it didn't, uh, I felt that I shouldn't watch something like that anymore. It just, it, it just didn't seem relevant to me at the time. Uh, when the Cloverway dub came back, uh, with, with Sailor Moon S in, um, in about 1999 or 2000 or whenever that was, I did, you know, I, I, my interest had sort of renewed and I went back to it and I really didn't, I found it, I found it very unpleasant to watch. I actually didn't like the original music uh for for one thing uh obviously my opinion of that has has definitely changed since but i found it to be just a really jarring and unpleasant experience for reasons that go beyond the localization uh but <laughs> but regardless uh i mean just still from what i absorbed of that version i i can still confidently say that that s was my favorite is my favorite portion of sailor moon by far um and i i really want to go back and and rewatch it again soon but i just haven't had an opportunity or legal means to do so for that matter Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting listening to both of you talk about there, going through a period where you stopped watching Sailor Moon for a while because you thought you weren't supposed to. And I think I also went through a period like that. There was a period where I thought, oh, I'm older now. I shouldn't like cartoons that I liked when I was younger. So I stopped and pretended that I was over Sailor Moon for a while. And I think that's probably part of why I missed most of that original of that um, 16 episode finishing up of R. Um, more specifically, it's interesting to hear that you guys felt pressure specifically because you were boys watching the show, because that best friend that I mentioned earlier, who was, who had seen the Princess Serenity scene, he eventually just randomly stopped talking to me one day and started hanging out more with his male friends and just never talked about Sailor Moon ever again. So I have to wonder if he kind of went through a similar thing. It wasn't, it's kind of interesting. It wasn't so much an active rejection for me. It just sort of fell off my radar of immediate interest for, I guess, maybe, maybe, I guess it was more subtle social pressure, I'd probably say. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say, like, mm-hmm. someone probably, like, threatened anybody with harm if you stopped <laughs> the show. But there is, like, a, a sort of, like, unspoken sort of peer pressure kind of thing. Like, I want to be, like, what I think I should be, so mm-hmm. I'll not do this. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, did you two have any specific favorite episodes? I have a bunch of favorite episodes. Um, I just rewatched the the first series a while ago, and um, most of the Ikuhara episodes actually struck out to me because those were ones that I liked uh, as a kid. And that would be the episode about the anime studio hmm. uh, in the first season, which mm-hmm. was which is really really cool. And I was like, oh, this is how this stuff is made, and it's just as weird as nice story between these two friends and the, the evil pens, and it was. It just struck, struck out to me. Um, the, the episode with Luna and the cat, uh, where the cat is one of the rainbow crystal holders. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like this weird comedy episode. That um, One of the first that I watched, because at first I didn't watch them like week to week. Uh, one of the first that really caught my eye was, uh, it was after uh, Venus was introduced. There's an episode, uh, I, think, I think the dub title is Bad Hair Day, where they go to a hair salon and, and they mistake uh, Mina for being Serena because of the hair color. And so they start attacking her. Uh, and it was just, I thought that was just really weird. And it just, uh, fun memories, because that's like one of the first ones I really actively took part in watching. Uh, and, and that's from like the first first season. There's lots from the other ones that I can't even uh, think about, but those ones really strike out to me right now. 
I would have to agree about the Ikuhara episodes. I haven't gone back and checked exactly which ones he's all done yet, but watching through the the recent DVD release and watching the the Nightmare in Dreamland episode reminded me how much I liked it when I was younger. And watching the original version, I I definitely got the Ikuhara vibe before I even looked it up. And sure enough, looking at the the credits afterward, is like I freaking knew it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It has a lot of his sort of surreal, sort of fairy tale esque hallmarks. Um, mm. But as for uh, other episodes, I always liked. Um, there was an episode after the Princess Serenity reveal where uh, Serena feels she has to be more princess-like, and so she finds out about a princess seminar. And I thought yeah. that was a lot of great wacky fun in that episode, and I just really liked the idea that you could go to school to be a princess. Yeah, that, that's a great episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as emotional episodes go, I cried so hard. Uh, the episode where Neflight died... Yep. Because especially because it's <laughs> it, that, that sort of thing never happened on kids TV before, mm-hmm. really. What really surprises me to this day about the episode where Neflight dies, and that's one of my favorites as well, um, was that it was basically completely uncensored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and it's it's kind of funny because it's it kind of reflects this era where digital editing didn't really exist the way that it that it would a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking the other day that if this show had if this English adaptation had been produced by Deke even just like a year or two later, or if they had had access to the digital editing technology that Funimation would have just been getting at the time, that scene probably would have been edited to hell and back. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they just they just kind of let it stand as was because they're... And it probably helped that I think he bled green, so yeah. it was okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's probably the only reason they were able to get away with it. Um, and they, they kind of had to because there was really no working around it at all. No. Um and and it kind of it still kind of harkens back to that Robotech era where you know the uh where or syndication standards were a little ambiguous and certain things could be could be worked around and slipped in in, in ways that you wouldn't expect in a in a children's Ooh. cartoon and that that basically vanished uh as soon as you know shows like the original Dragon Ball ushered in uh digital editing which wasn't really a thing mm-hmm. before that speaking of editing like i really like day of destiny even though it's Yes. two episodes crammed into one uh i think that uh it works and like even though they say like um that as as the other scouts die they say like oh they were taken to the negaverse like but you i know. don't know i don't i don't know any kid uh who didn't talk about that as as if they died because they like it's obvious that that's what happened uh <laughs> so like even like their their editing efforts didn't really make it through and watching those two episodes later like they are they are both very strong episodes separately uh and i'm impressed that they managed to make something that actually made some kind of sense even though it (laughs) it it rushes through the finale more than uh more than more than it really should it's it's impressive how fast they still get what you need for when you're that Mm -hmm. age watching that episode and you also get that amazing song (laughs) Yeah, the yep. one in the very end battle. That was a bit I of an improvement I... over the original too, where they just yeah, yes, they just played of, the yes. original theme. Yeah, I think I sang that at a like school karaoke competition at one time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to point out it's interesting that I, I agree that the Ikuhara episodes do tend to be some of the most memorable ones. Um, I also want to point out it's very interesting that everyone's favorite episodes are from season one. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hadn't finished yet. There's a couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you two. do. Okay. 
Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> like, I think one of the other ones that I that I really really liked were uh, especially episodes that focused around the 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 heel turns of the the Black Moon Sisters, and I think my favorite of those is the episode with um, Birdie and the the chess tournament. Where she's like turning herself to ice and basically threatening to commit suicide if <laughs> if she can't do her job properly. And, and I have I have like my all time favorite episode. Uh, not talking about the dub, uh, like strictly in Japanese, is um, a R episode. It's where uh, the the scouts fight the Ayakashi sisters, uh, and there's a song that plays over it. I know Senshi, and the animation is Time to the Music. Yeah, and that's something you never see in anime almost ever. And the fight is just really, really cool. Uh, also, an Ikuhara episode. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> it, I was going to say before I realized that oh, people do remember episodes from <laughs> after the first season. <laughs> that I, I think that the this like the really strong episodic nature of the first season are the really strong memorable episodes i think that's really a testament to uh junichi sato's directing Mm -hmm. uh because i mean the show really does have a noticeable change when ikuhara took over in in r it's not necessarily a bad one uh Mm -hmm. at all uh because like like i said s is my favorite season and that's the most ikuhara uh (laughs) that's the most ikuhara of the seasons by far but it uh i mean there's noticeable difference and the episode where where neflite dies was uh directed by junichi sato as well and i there never was another episode. Well, okay, I, I guess there were some episodes much later that were that were similar in the later episodes of S, but uh, there there was definitely there was definitely something to that episode that was mm. rarely recaptured again later in the in the various seasons. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, also, I want to give a special shout out to the entire Doom Tree saga because, as episodic and filler as that saga is, it still has a place in my heart, and I still to this day find it weird to refer to the to those two characters as Ale and Anne because Alan and Anne just sounds like it rolls off the tongue yeah. much better. Mm. Much better. Um so just kind of moving on, uh I wanted to just before we get into the the sort of debating the Canadianness of the English adaptation, I just want to kind of wanted to compare the Japanese the original Japanese context of the show to the Canadian one. So uh the way I see it is that obviously Magical Girls had existed for uh, like a good 25 years before 20, 25 years before Sailor Moon debuted. Um, yeah. the, the, the way I see it is that it in, in a way kind of reinvigorated the genre after the eighties. Um, but it was also the way that it approached um, magical girls by like infusing Sentai elements into it, where you have a team of girls who are color coded and have different powers and stuff um, really made it stand out from the shows that preceded it because it was one of the first examples of a Magical Girl show in which the the characters seemed more empowered rather than infantilized mm-hmm. uh, it, mm-hmm. in the way that they use magic. Um, and that I think that that says a lot because Magical Girl as a genre had basically been co-opted by otaku almost from the beginning, uh, even before otaku was was a phrase. <laughs> it, had been, <laughs> it had been co-opted by adult men uh, as as early as the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and... Uh, I actually did a did a panel on the history of Magical Girls, and uh, before Sailor Moon, uh, there weren't there weren't many uh, fighting Magical Girls. Uh, majority of it was the uh, the the pro Magical Girls, which like the creamy mommies, the magical Emmys, the ones who would transform to solve a problem or transform to be an idol. Not so much 
to be the warrior, although like Cutie Honey was that, and there were a few other examples, but the dominant one was like was freely cutesy, uh, using magic to help people and not using magic to fight people. And mm-hmm. Sailor Moon, uh, bringing in the Sentai elements, uh, really kind of ushered in an age where that was the prevalent magic role going forward, and it still is going forward. Like ever since Sailor Moon, you don't really get the the idle magical girl ones as much like there was full moon osaka shite uh and that's really the only one that comes to mind yeah that's the last one i can think of yeah so sailor moon really changed the entire genre of magical girls into warriors instead of pop idols or something like that yeah like something like madoka magica is touted as a deconstruction of the magical girl genre but mm-hmm. it's really only a, a deconstruction of that particular Sailor Moon-esque style of magical girls. And that sort of speaks to just how big the impact of that show was on the whole genre. Yeah. And, a, and of course, a Cute High Earth Defense Club Love, is, <laughs> uh, which is a parody of magical girls, is mm-hmm. really specifically a parody of, of Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, don't, I would argue, well, there's Sailor Moon in there for sure, but I would kind of argue it's more about Precure because that's oh, okay. the yeah. more popular franchise yeah, at the right. moment. I can see. And having watched a lot of Precure, <laughs> I can tell yeah. you there's some specific references. Uh, speaking of Pretty Cure, as we you know we mentioned on the show before, how the Pretty Cure dub did air on YTV, and it was always interesting mm-hmm. to see YTV uh, air that because uh, they, they were airing it at the same in the same time slot that Sailor Moon originally aired. Uh, mm. Yes, they were afternoons at 3:30 p.m. I think I think it was actually during the summer, which may be the uh, the, <laughs> the the unfortunate part. Um, and obviously it didn't catch on, which... Yeah, I don't think I ever saw an episode of that on TV. Oh, I, I watched uh, at least the first 12 uh, religiously, just because I wanted to support that uh, going on. Uh, I I find that dub charming, is the word I would use. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's it's the Calgary Blue Water studio who did the dub, and they're, they're not my favorite studio, but sometimes they have some heart. And I think uh, I ended up watching the entire pretty cured dub uh as my primary way of watching that first series and i i I found it uh endearing if not very flawed (laughs) but uh but i did i did really like that ytv took the chance and actually put that on tv uh Mm. even though it didn't have the impact they wanted it to well the fact that even at that point sort of the magic of sailor moon could not be replicated that way shows Mm. that you know, e- even at that point in the in the mid two thousands, that the viewing habits of children had changed dramatically from the mm. mid nineties, mm-hmm. um, and they have also changed dramatically now, which is why something like Sailor Moon or even Inuyasha, as we discussed in the last episode, you probably can't directly replicate um, yeah. the way that those shows. Although now, now the impact might be felt in a different way because we have a couple of new magical girl shows on Netflix now, among others, we have another pretty cure incarnation in the form of glitter force. And mm. we also have the, the anime inspired lolly rock, which I hear is not half bad. And I think a lot of young kids are going to be watching those shows now. And I'm mm. interested to see what the impact of those shows will be over time. You know, I, ha- I have to say, I find it weird that people are like, we're gushing so much over glitter force. Cause I, I just find no, it, <laughs> it's not a good show. Oh no, it's not. But like, <laughs> At least in my like Twitter bubble, it seemed like people were just gushing mm. over. Oh, it's it's kind of nice to have these these Saban hack job, or these Saban <laughs> hack hack job uh, localizations back. 
and I don't know that I don't know the idea of being nostalgic for that doesn't sit right with me. But... I, <laughs> I I would be one of those people who really like felt the nostalgia because I I did feel like uh the glitter force kind of brought back the the appropriate amount of cheesiness that <laughs> a show like Pretty Cure kind of deserves. Uh, I I thought it was it was a pretty good localization personally. I thought that. Uh, the way the way they handled it was probably the best way to market it to uh, an American audience would be. Uh, but uh, apparently, it's not. It didn't do so hot, and Toei is now uh, marketing Pretty Cure again as Pretty Cure, and I don't even know if Saban's gonna be able to release the rest. Of oh, that's kind of disappointing. That's not but I, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know if it's not doing well or if it's doing so well that Toei decided to do their own properties, which seems to be the case for most of Toei's stuff, which would be why we don't have Dragon Ball Super yet. I just remember well. looking at the comments of Glitter Force, and like two-thirds of them at least were upset Pretty Cure fans, or at least people pretending <laughs> to be Pretty Cure fans. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's hard to judge how people were reacting in that sense. Aaron mentioned at the beginning of the episode how, when you first heard of the show, you were you, you, the sailor aspect is something that you found very perplexing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is the first time anybody had sort of encountered that idea of, of like a sailor suit being uh, an aesthetic element of, of a show. Um, so j- just in terms of ha- what the show was when it arrived on the air in, in 95, I, I mean, obviously we know that the, one of the main reasons it was able to hit in Canada because it was aired weekday afternoons, after school, regular time slot. Um, it, obviously kids were watching it uh, and it was much harder for kids in the United States to, to do the same because it was airing so sporadically. Um, so we know that that consistency in presentation was uh, was a vital factor. But I mean, what else do you think really made a show like this stick the way that it did in this sort of awkward pre-Pokemon period? Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I think at least a factor would probably be just the form factor of YTV with the with the the PJ segments in between shows where you could have people like Phil and whatnot talking up the show that you had just watched or that you were about to watch and have people writing in and get, uh, sending in pictures and letters about the shows that they liked. And of course, Sailor Moon was one of them. So you kind of uh, felt like that you had this shared experience watching the show week to week. You knew you weren't the only one who was really into this thing. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Uh, YTV's format really did a lot to uh push it like i i think it's, there's two factors one sailing moon became popular just on its own merits and two the the zone and the similar elements uh being canadian they could and based in toronto they could have the actresses come onto the show and and talk about the show and have those segments there that also push the show to an audience and it just the zone built a community around their programming and so people who would watch like if there was like Power Rangers would also see ads for Sailor Moon and be like, Oh, Sailor Moon is like Power Rangers. I'll watch Sailor Moon as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that, that whole community aspect of that block really helped to, to push uh, the popularity of all its shows. Really. Um, I think it also helped that Sailor Moon had a much more successful merchandising push here than they did in the States. Yes. (laughs) That that, that is actually the, the miraculous thing about Sailor Moon. I find (laughs) like they had, they had the dolls, they had a whole whack of uh, spin-off products, they had that CD that everyone I knew who liked Sailor Moon <laughs> yeah. had. Um, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and of course, I wanted all of the dolls. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that that's really the big thing about Sailor Moon is that it's an incredibly rare example of a show where uh, of a show that uh, we hear all the time of shows that you know get better ratings in Canada than they do in the states but it makes no difference to the success of of a franchise or something because viewer numbers are not everything it's all about merchandise Sailor Moon is like one of the only cases where the merchandise which was being handled by Irwin was a massive success in Canada but not in the states and that's well, you hear stories about, like, Save Our Sailors and, and buying people buying Pop-Tarts and stuff. But I mean, what, what really got those last 16 episodes made, uh, the, the last 16 episodes uh, localized for Sailor Moon R was the success of the merchandise um, in mm. Canada specifically. And, and, and it's, I find it really unfortunate that, you know, the three of us and probably many, many other people um, – kind of glossed over that period of the, the the end bit of Sailor Moon R because in many ways that block of episodes is so significant it's such a rare success story for uh yeah. for, for the anime industry actually working and succeeding in Canada at such an early stage because I mean they were produced in Canada for Can- like the, or the the English localization was produced in Canada almost explicitly for Canadians and it was because the merchandise sold here because the because the the market elements were successful and you know it's just such it's just so cool that that happened and it's so unfortunate that um we we really haven't seen anything else happen like that and also that that isn't uh, or, or we're not really seeing that reflected in the current situation with Sailor Moon. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Definitely. I think that's because at this point the anime industry has so uh homogenized itself that we we either get everything on as like a package deal with the United States or uh or the industry just assumes that the United States is the is the priority and forgets or doesn't pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well that said, so I mean we know that the the original Sailor Moon localization was very much a Canadian thing, uh to varying degrees of its of its production. But now that Sailor Moon has sort of become reestablished thanks to Viz, uh, has has Sailor Moon as an English language phenomenon? Do you guys think it has lost its Canadianness? Do you feel that its specific relevance in Canada has been maybe erased or forgotten at this point, um, or is that or is the legacy still significant? I guess that's the big question. Is 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 all of that still significant now that you know we we've kind of hit the restart button uh, in in terms of the show's English language character? Um. I, I kind of do, actually. I, I wouldn't have said so at the time of it being licensed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time it was licensed, I thought, oh, this is great. This is the resurgence that it needs. It's going to be everywhere again. And just the, the focus, Viz's focus on the Hulu and the American market and really not touching Canada until the, the Blue releases come out uh, really did a number on enthusiasm here uh i i saw a big push when, when it when it came out and uh because it came out at the same time as the the figure arts line was coming out and mm. those were, were massive among all my friends like lots of them have uh at least three of the of the, of the new set i have i have them all because that's what i do <laughs> uh <laughs> uh but as it went on um it just kind of kept dying out and uh i'm sure part of that is due to the fact that the only access we had was was crystal crystal seasons one and two or parts one and two 
Which, and that was such not, a great way to draw people back in. Yeah, exactly. Which 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 was well, it was not, until it aired, or yeah, or was yeah. Or rather was uh, streamed. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I can tell you, working at uh, a local comic book store, I sold a lot of Sailor Moon manga and merchandise on the promise that Crystal was coming. Like, thankfully, Crystal season three is great, and hopefully, it's going to continue being great from now on. But those first two seasons, being the only thing that we had, like those first two seasons, kill, killed enthusiasm throughout but being the only thing that canadians had it really killed enthusiasm for sailor moon uh almost entirely because we didn't we only got the blu-ray releases here and not a lot of people buy blu-rays anymore mm-hmm. uh if we would have had a streaming if, if like class if sailor moon class on like crunchyroll or netflix or or like anything like that it i don't think i take it would i would take crave fizzled. at this point <laughs> yeah i don't think it would have fizzled as much as it did and but but it it really did fizzle here. Yeah, I like mm-hmm. I I was saying like this this would be like not letting people in Latin America access Saint Seiya. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of like an equivalent <laughs> to that. That's a really good comparison yeah. to make, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, definitely Viz's whole hand. Uh, I mean, okay, we're just we've we've descended into just shitting on Viz again, which I have no problem with. But, <laughs> I mean, we all, we all knew it was going to go there. Um, just the way that I know that when Viz picked it up, they said they acknowledged like the Canadian relevance, and they said mm-hmm. we're hoping that YTV picks this up, which was just lip service completely. And yeah. in a way, that sort of I think that sort of embodies a lot of the problems with the anime industry now, um, and and how. They're just none of the companies are just really committed. I mean, they'll they'll say they're serving Canada, but like, I mean, look at Crunchyroll. They uh they they will give lip service to Canada, but at the same time, they uh they they cut off access to non-subscribers to their their library titles. Um, mm-hmm. while at the same time, apparently sending dubbing their new dubbing work to to Canada, or at least in the mm-hmm. case of of Gintama, as uh the CRTC website is indicated. If you just in case anyone wasn't aware of that. Um, which, you know, is great, but that's still, there's still a, a, a definite, um, a definite, a definite hypocrisy going on there. And for me, the fact that Sailor Moon just isn't being made available in a, you know, in a, in a really adequate streaming format, that's really the tipping point indicating that there's just kind of a systemic problem, uh, with, mm-hmm. with the way the Canadian market's being treated right now. Because I like to think that, you know, that, that era, that, era when something like the late the last 16 episodes of Sailor Moon R was possible I, I like to think that that potential is still latent in the Canadian market to this day but we just they're just the circumstances never arise for that to to become really apparent mm-hmm. and and I, and I think like uh I think I said, said this before in a previous podcast but I think the the glossing over Canada uh promotes a kind of a culture of of piracy up here uh lot like lots of my people i know lots of people who go to cons and stuff really have no no problem just downloading on other like on illegal streaming sites and and as like one of the guys who like says no like like you should be paying for your stuff it it, it falls on deaf ears a lot and seeing how other how the u.s companies uh treat the canadian market it's it, it's hard it, it's easy to see why people would would feel like like no one would care if I pirate because I live in Canada, and and I, I think that's a problem that that arises because of this glossing over of this market here. Yeah, like I again while I was working at my job, I've had to take more than one person aside when they mentioned that they watch anime via like 
kiss anime or go go anime mm. or something like that and carefully explain to them that those sites aren't actually legal and they it's a surprise to them that they're not there's not enough information out there about what the legal services are and there's not enough push to get people actually watching them <laughs> especially because there's not enough attention paid to making sure that the titles that people want are all there for Canadian mm-hmm. access. This is a big reason why I would actually like to see Crunchyroll just have a monopoly over over anime <laughs> streaming because because <laughs> one of the re- like one of the reasons that um, Kiss Anime is able to persist is because they do kind of have everything and that's a uh, you know pe- people who pirate are always going to find an excuse to do so but that's mm-hmm. one of the things people like to point out is like oh Crunchyroll doesn't have everything and that's even more true now that Canadians can't access their back catalog unless they have a subscription mm-hmm. and uh, if Crunchyroll can have like the 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 true wealth of, of content that's available then right and it doesn't help that there seem to be more exclusive licensing deals going on now like uh like with amazon getting cabinary yeah and mm-hmm. the m- most relevant to me um love live sunshine is an exclusive to funimation and mm-hmm. technically is on crunchyroll but only for viewers in the uk and ireland <laughs> it's t- it's too bad that crunchyroll yeah. didn't get the french canadian rights to that one <laughs> yeah. which they have done with a few titles mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Actually, I think Daisuke might have Love Live Sunshine as well, but it's not up yet for some reason. Yeah. Daisuke, you need a subscription to watch um, simulcast. Yeah, they they just st- started implementing that, I think. Mm-hmm. I wish them luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else you guys think worth bringing up? Um, should we talk more about the recent releases like Crystal and the... I, I haven't been following Crystal. I haven't really had time. Um, So I know that the first two seasons are like basically reviled it's it's pretty much unanimous that you're better off watching the original series um mm-hmm. for for sailor moon and sailor moon r but i hear the third one is uh is better how, how would you say it compares to s i'm just personally curious uh, um i haven't sorry you go first okay uh it's definitely not as as stylized uh ikuhara's influence is all all over s mm-hmm. uh like just like the shot composition the framing uh, it's very clear that that he had a really big influence on how that how that whole series went. Uh, Crystal season three, uh, his influences still kind of come through because it was so influential for for us. And there's lots of lots of framing of like framing with roses that's very Ikuhara that just kind of come through through the animators now uh, looking back and getting influence from that. Uh, Crystal season three tells makes the story much more uh truncated much more to the point and i think that uh it works really well uh especially compared to the the manga works in a manga format but not beyond that there's lots of quick cuts lots of weird transitions that don't translate to anime and that's kind of what crystal uh parts one and two did is they they really went for uh we're going to be like the manga exactly and we're going to follow we're going to make the the pacing the same and we're going to do a chapter an episode and that doesn't work it needs to be in the form of an anime and that's what Konjaki or Chiaki Kone uh did was was she managed to change the way that Crystal was from the manga to the anime and it flows way better uh the characters uh the characters who are focused have arcs that make sense uh, nothing feels out of place. Nothing feels disjointed like uh, the first two crystals did, uh, and the animation is as a whole. Like I think this has a lot better, uh, lot, lots better resources, lots better planning. Uh, 
Uh, it looks better all throughout. Uh, and that's on a week-to-week schedule versus an every-two-week schedule that Crystal 1 and 2 had. Uh, and it just looked like garbage the entire way through. Uh, uh, and this new one, having proper planning and proper resources behind it, looks great, uh, sounds great, uh, is written great, and it just works as a whole much better. Uh, I don't really have much more to add to that, because I actually have only seen the first episode of the new Crystal, mainly because I wanted to catch up a bit on the previous season so that I wouldn't be, so that I wouldn't have missed anything by accident, and getting through those episodes was like pulling teeth. (laughs) Um, And after that, I kind of like, I had a bad taste in my mouth for Crystal, even starting with the pretty good first episode of the third season. So I think I need to work myself up to, to get back to watching that, mm-hmm. but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, uh, I really liked what I saw. Mm-hmm. I, I would say um, for the first season, it like the final two episodes are good is what I would tentatively say. Uh, the final two episodes, they actually managed to fix lots of their problems. Uh, the pacing was, was better. Uh, Chibiusa had a 2D transformation instead of a 3D one, so I think they realized their mistakes, realized that everyone was 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 shitting on it, and and just managed to turn around. So I think really all you need to watch is like uh, Crystal episode one, the last two, and then go right into three, and you're fine if you have a background knowledge of Sailor Moon, because I don't think it's that much different story wise in those first two seasons and uh, season three and the eventual season four, are different enough to make it worth watching uh, these new ones, especially the theoretical season four, which from all accounts that I've heard is that that's the manga's best arc and that's the classic anime's worst season. So I'm really curious to see how that will transfer over to anime form. And I think that could be really where it shines, but we won't know until it actually comes out. Yeah, I will be looking forward to it for that reason, because I I still haven't read much of the manga to this day. I think I've read the first three or four volumes or so, um, and I never read it back in the day. Um, so I was hoping that Crystal would be my gateway into the manga storyline without <laughs> having to spend my limited money on 12 volumes of manga. Um, so I was really disappointed when it turned out to not be that, and mm-hmm. I'm even proportionally more glad that the third and upcoming fourth seasons probably will be that the speculation seems to be that uh these last couple seasons that that we're waiting on could very well wind up being uh, better than what we got in the previous anime so i I look Mm -hmm. forward to seeing that so i guess i'll just end off with a question Uh, this has been discussed to death on the show already but uh (laughs) whether we're talking about the original show or crystal do you think there are any prospects for for sailor moon returning to television or is that like super irrelevant at this point (laughs) Incredibly so, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I think there there's not a chance. I think the best the best that we can hope for is like maybe uh, Toei is going to be a little tighter on it and put it on Netflix maybe with themselves. Yeah, or uh, like I don't know, I, maybe Cartoon Network since I think they aired the show at some point during its revival, so maybe they could theoretically get that license again. Mm-hmm. But who knows? They yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think Sailor Moon is the show that would that would really thrive on like a canadian netflix like it's, oh, yeah, it, for sure. it's big enough the, the to demand be... is definitely there yeah yeah it's yeah. so stupid <laughs> we can't watch this <laughs> it's so stupid and and the worst part is that it's given birth to the the sailor moon canada twitter account as well <laughs> uh, and i am going to tell you i'm not i'm not going to name the person who runs that what? but he is 
a huge jerk. He is. He's actually been harassing Viz. Oh no! And Charlene Ingram. He actually he yeah. was at Anime Revolution, and I saw him do it. Oh. Um. He's oh. yeah, and he he operates making his Twitter account look like it's an official. Uh, when it is not official at all, it's basically just him complaining. And he he has been doing this for years as well, even before this Sailor Moon debacle. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he had he was complaining about other weird issues of accessibility. Uh, even and once Sailor Moon starts streaming, he will still continue to find something to complain about. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, if you use Twitter, not like not only don't follow that guy, um, just block him. Find him and block yeah. him. I recommend it because he uh, he does sea lion conversations. He'll look for conversations about about uh, Sailor Moon in English and he'll kind of derail them personally. Oh, that's good but, to know because I think he yeah. follows me. Oh yeah, yeah. I would, I would <laughs> yeah, for sure block that guy. He's trouble. <laughs> well, I, I hate to end on a negative note like that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feel like we ought to end this off with a Sailor Says segment with a moral of the day. Uh... No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows what the moral of this all is. I mean, though, like those Sailor Says segments got so increasingly cynical as they went on, especially <laughs> considering that they still did them in the last 16 episodes of R for some reason, but they were mm-hmm. all rehashed ones from previous episodes. And it's just like, why are you even doing this? It's like, it, it's like you're, you're just, you're just screwing with us at this point. <laughs> I think I saw someone repost one recently about like getting out of an abusive relationship. And I was like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, remember yeah, that one. Yeah. Hey, this is the second part of our Sailor Moon retrospective. For this portion of the episode, I have two guests joining me. Uh, the first uh, has been on the show before. Uh, she is one of the webmasters at the Moon Chase blog, which you can find at moon-chase.com. And she's also the mastermind behind the recent uh, Toronto Sailor Moon celebration, the second of which just happened this past weekend. It's Emily Gonzalez. Hello. And uh, the the main subject for this interview, a very special guest. Uh, he's the he was the director for most of the English language adaptation for Sailor Moon uh, when it was being produced by Deke. Uh, he's also the author of a book documenting his experiences, which is titled Sailor Moon Reflections. Uh, it's Roland Parliament. Hi, hey, Roland. Uh, very glad to he- have you here for this episode. And I'm very glad to be here. So just to sort of get. Uh, the timeline here straightened out. You directed episodes 11 through 65 of the original run. Uh, then, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, you came back a couple of years later to direct the an additional 16 episodes. Actually, uh, no. Oh, no? Um, no. Uh, John Stalker was uh, my replacement mm-hmm. uh, for that. Um, although I did return to uh, perform my character... Melvin Butler. Yes, you were you were Melvin even regardless of who was directing any portion of the show. You were Melvin for the entire run of the original dub. Yes, I was. Yeah. To this day, there are a lot of uh, debates that go on online over who people prefer: um, Melvin, who was the version of the character in the dub, or Umino, who was the equivalent of the Japanese version, because they're they're characterized quite differently. Uh, the way you characterize a, a a nerd like him is actually. Notably different in, when you're localizing it in English versus how he was in the Japanese version. Uh, but it seems a lot of people prefer Melvin. I think uh, I think he has a certain charm that 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 appealed to people more. You know more. that touches me to the heart. <laughs> um, it, it really does because uh, it was I had to draw on my past, uh, and uh, until I became a guitar player in a band, I was a nerd. Uh, I was a bookie, uh, bookworm not bookie, 
Um, oh, I thought, yeah, I thought it, there was a whole chapter of your past that you, you didn't even mention any of that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you, you had your start out kind of in music, and then you you transitioned over to voice recording. Now, usually when we talk about um, voiceover recording, a, a lot of the industry as we know it these days is based uh, here where I am in Vancouver or in Calgary. We don't hear as much about Toronto, and I know that you were you were kind of actively involved in it in that time. Can you kind of tell us a bit about what that was like, kind of paint a picture of what it was, of that whole scene was like in Toronto in, in the mid-90s? Uh, we were very busy, uh, film-wise, because uh, the Canadian dollar was, I think, at 70 cents or something at the time. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of American production companies coming here because uh, to Toronto because we have a huge wealth of voice and acting talent here in Toronto. Uh, so the scene was very busy. In fact, it was kind of annoying at times because so many streets were shut off uh, for film shoots uh, with their multiple... Uh, huge vans and, and trucks there and cameras and crew and actors and so on. Um, but it was a very uh, wealthy time for Toronto at the time. And, and how does that compare to now and of that industry? I'm not sure how long you've been uh, away from uh, that. It's Well, again, the Canadian dollar keeps fluctuating. <laughs> uh, um, so it, it's still well below the American dollar. Um, and, you know, not living in Toronto at the moment. I'm now living in Welland, Ontario, small town. Uh, uh, it, it still seems to be pretty busy. Uh, and I think from what I read online and what I know from industry sources that, you know, it's, it's a good scene in Toronto. It's also a very good scene in Vancouver. Yeah, things are, uh, they're certainly, they're certainly starting to, to pick up again a lot, uh, with the, the dollar reaching its recent low. So you started as the, the director of the, the English language version for, for Sailor Moon around episode 11. Uh, and I understand it was Tracy Moore who did the first 10? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what was there, what, what kind of happened with that whole thing? How did you, uh, fall into the role of, of director? Uh, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, you know, uh, Silly Moon was my first animation experience, and I had recorded 10 episodes as my character, Melvin. Uh, and I was recording late one evening, and I could see that there was some very heated discussion going on between Tracy Moore and producer Nicole Teo, which, by, because I was separated by the glass, I didn't understand what was going on. But it just so happened that uh, Tracy had also been contracted to do an on-stage performance at Huron County Theater, uh, and that conflicted with her engagement as both Sailor Moon as director as Sailor Moon, um, and she had to honor that one contract for Huron County, Huron County Playhouse. So uh, she had said, look, I can come back on the dark days, which is Sunday and Monday, uh, to direct this, and Nicole just went ballistic and uh. said, no way. You know, the show is way behind schedule, so you're out. Then the next day I got a call from my agent saying, do you think you want to direct this? And I said, are you kidding? You know, of course. So uh, I took over the director's chair, um, and then along came Terry Hawks to replace Tracy Moore as Sailor Moon. And uh, again, and I've said this many times in my book and in other interviews, 
I can't say enough good about Terry Hawk. She is brilliant, and I think she she was the best Sailor Moon. Uh, Tracy Moore I actually overheard a comment between Joe Frappier and uh, and Nicole uh, that uh, Tracy's version of Sailor Moon was frenetic, uh, frenetic, uh, <laughs> you know, little little over the top. Um, not much subtlety there, uh, but that's what Terry Hawks brought to the role was subtlety, and she—I mean, she's just a great person. Period. I, I understand the the production w- was pretty grueling. You were really down to the wire uh, on a lot of the episodes. Um, I, I I understand that you were just—they they were being done a lot of time, just you know, just less than a week before. The Canadian broadcast. Yeah, at one point, we were exactly one week ahead of the uh, the broadcast schedule, and that's when we really poured it on. And the work days were very. We started at nine o'clock in the morning. We'd finish at one the next morning, and then get up and do it again uh, almost every day, including weekends. Uh, you know, with very little time off. But we, again, as I mentioned in the book and as I've mentioned in other interviews, we use a system called the Rhythmo Band, which was really fast. Uh, it involved a big white screen about 20 feet wide by feet high with a black line at the left end of the screen. It was synced to the picture and the sound. And if you recited every syllable as it passed over that black line, so, so the 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 production of the English language version itself was a little. We obviously it was divided. There were some things that were being done at Deke's end, and you know the real grindy stuff was being done at your end with the with the with the uh, voice recording. Um, now I know I understand most of the the localization changes and and video edits. All that stuff was decided at at Deke's end. But did you uh, ever have to do script changes or or last minute rewrites or? Or, or any kind of frantic changes for for that kind of thing at your end, or or localization They're calls. They're really uh, minimal. Uh, you know, I, Terry, for instance, had a problem with the word "lady." Uh, she thought that was sexist. You know, and there were you know a, a few changes. You know, um, uh, for instance, when Tuxedo Mask was uh, wrapping his cane against, uh, I think it was Netflight. And Toby Proctor, who played Tuxedo Mask at the time, wasn't making any sounds. And I said, well, you know, we need some sounds in here, Tobe. Um, so I suggested woof, 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 woof each time he struck the thing. But really, uh, we stuck pretty close to the scripts that were supplied by D. So you were obviously really bogged down during the production of the show, but uh, you still started to get some... some uh some feedback streaming in uh, from what I understand. When did you get a sense that the show was sort of becoming a hit with viewers in Canada? Probably about the second week it was aired. Oh, wow. Uh, I I personally didn't receive any, like, emails mm-hmm. or information or anything, but, you know, uh, I started to notice that it was aired on YTV at the time, that viewership there was way up uh, mm-hmm. uh, for this particular show, and uh, you know that there was just a buzz around the studio that, hey guys, I think we got something. Uh, let's now let's work even harder, and we did, you know, because we realized, uh, of course, at the time we had no idea about the longevity of 
of its popularity, but we do we did know that man, this is a very watched show, and it also none of the cast uh, b- beforehand had really any concept of anime, um, so it, it came as a complete shock to us about the popularity it had. So then I started exploring the internet and, and looking at things regarding the show, and realized, holy moly, we got something here. On the other end, did you ever hear anything, like, during the production process, did you ever hear anything from Deke about how how they felt the property was performing, for, at least from their perspective? Nah. You know, Deke, <laughs> Deke was a real hands-off organizer. Uh, they were in it for the money, period. Uh, they really didn't care too much about, you know, how the show was put together or anything. Uh, and I, I understand they went out of... Um, they've been they've I, you know what the ironic thing is that uh, I, I know in the book you talked about how insistent that Deke was or, or how uh, that it was the show was being produced for an American audience. and They didn't really care about the Canadianness of any of it. Um, you may be you may find comfort in knowing that all of Deke's properties are now owned by DHX Media, which is a Canadian company. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. Yeah, there's a there's an abs- there's a very beautiful irony behind all of that. Well, I think that's really cool and uh, more power to them, you know, carry on. And in the book, you also mentioned that they had problems with the with Canadian pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> like, what what was with that? Like, like of, of all the things for them to hone in on, I don't, like, that's the strangest thing I can think of. Well, well you know, once again, and, I, and again, it's mentioned in the book about this heated conversation I had with uh, one of the producers, Deke. You know, they very... Uh, foully said, well, this isn't meant for a Canadian audience, it's meant for an American audience. Um, and we, we do have, we do have a Canadian accent. Uh, in fact, uh, we have 56 different Canadian dialects, uh, across the country. Um, so, you know, there would be, well, words like, uh, sorry, the American <laughs> pronunciation is sorry. Um, so they flatten all those O, O, sound into an a sound and you know they're they're quite livid about uh, which you know took me a little aback in the beginning but then i went okay well that's what you want then that's what you're going to get so we had a list of words the watch it words printed on uh, just beneath the the screen which were the ou words um uh, and various other words that American pronunciation are more flattened, to use a term, than the Canadian. Yeah, I've never heard of that, like, like that kind of measure having to be taken for, like, or rather kind of reverse localizing something that's been outsourced to, to, to Canada. That's, that's, that's definitely a bizarre kind of strain to have to put on the production, I guess, but. We, we really do run the gamut uh, of pronunciations in Canada. In Toronto, our pronunciations are far more American uh, because we have so much uh, American influence being so close to the border. And here I am in Welland, which is like 20 minutes away from the border, uh, but still they, uh, in in this little town, um, they have that really Canadian accent. They're, they're not, despite being that close, they're not so influenced by the American pronunciation. And in Buffalo, uh, there's a, a, a shop in Buffalo called Pops, which, and I've seen commercials for them in the American brand, Taps, you know. <laughs> so, I don't know. 
I will always seem to have more of a neutral accent, but my parents both grew up in the Caribbean. Um, so sometimes I get influenced by that accent or I'll have friends that will come over and they'll be like, I can't understand what your dad is saying. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not that hard. My mother is also an, an ESL teacher. Um, and so I previously had also done some ESL tutoring. And one of the students that I had been helping years ago, he was from Jamaica. And so uh, my mom growing up in Guyana, my dad growing up in Trinidad, I was fairly familiar with those types of accents. They, they do have subtle differences between the, di- uh, between the different islands. Um, and I had no problem really understanding him. Um, but the, the home where he was staying, um, they had a lot of difficulty understanding him. They thought that his accent was so strong and, um, and they got really confused. And I was like, ah. and there's certain sounds that they're not, uh, as used to making, uh, like the TH sound is not common in the, through the Caribbean. They, they usually end up changing it to like a T or a D sound rather than a th. So it's actually really difficult for them to do that because they're not used to it. There's actually only three languages where the TH sound exists. Uh, one is English, uh, the other is Greek, and the third is, I believe, uh, Estonian. Uh, French, for instance, don't have a TH sound. So, and Nicole, the producer, was, was Parisian French, so it was like, uh, I think so. Yeah. It, it's it's you know. interesting to see how other languages try to adapt to that particular sound too. In in J- in Japanese, whenever they try to imitate the th sound, they use su. So if like death would be desu. I teach dialects at Niagara College, oh, okay. yeah. so I'm quite quite familiar with this. But uh, for instance, uh, the difference between Quebecois French and Parisian French is uh, Parisian French is at the back of the throat. J'achète un cabot pour ma mère. Uh, and uh, in Quebecois, j'achète un cadeau par ma mère. So, uh, and that's uh, just to give everybody a little bit of a dialect lesson here. Yeah, the, uh, the Quebec accent is a little rougher. It's, you know, it's it's, it's more casual. It's considered quite rural by the Parisian French. Yeah. It, yeah. And they change words. Uh, like potato, for instance, in, in Parisian French is pomme de terre, uh, and in Quebecois it's, uh, patate. Yeah. And yeah. Parisian French is more open to loan words as well, whereas, uh, Quebecois French is very extremely resistant to them, especially English loan words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so I understand that qu- quite early, you, you, uh, Roland, uh, you started visiting some conventions that were taking place in, in Ontario or the Toronto area, uh, specifically. What, what were your, like, first experiences with that like? Well, the first one I went to was at UTARPA, which was, uh, University of Toronto Role Playing Association or something there. Yeah. Uh, about, do you remember and, about what year that was? Uh, I think it was 1995 or 96. Oh, okay, wow, yeah. And I was invited there by, uh, an anime fan, Steve Mittler, and they were having an anime convention, uh, an all-nighter, where people were piled around the room with pillows and soft drinks and food and stuff, and we sort of snuck in there uh, under dark and got seated in the first row, um, and this is when I looked around the room and wow, the people in there. Uh, and when the lights came up, uh, Steve Mittler introduced me, and the crowd went freaking nuts. 
uh, I, I'd never seen a reception like that before. And then Stephanie Morgenstern, who played Cilla Venus, came with me, and I introduced her, and then the crowd went really nuts uh, because she looked so much like her character in the series. And uh, that that was that opened my eyes as to what this was really about. Uh, at that point, I said, "We got to do more of these." Uh, so you know, it, it started slowly. You know, we contacted a few places about things, thing, uh, appearances, and autograph signing, and so on. Actually, with that, the first convention you brought up with you, you brought up. It's interesting because uh, Stephanie Morgenstern. There's a video clip of this on YouTube where she actually talks about that particular. Uh, screening that she's going to and kind of advertised it on television beforehand that was a really interesting gateway to to that kind of world for such a kind of mainstream outlet that was you know came along with sailor moon's exposure on tv and i'd I'd like to add another thing about stephanie morgenstern and and her partner and husband mark ellis is that they were the originators and creators a really big hit show uh, called flashpoint I think I knew that at some point, but I I had forgotten it and 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 certainly relearned it from this book. Yeah, and in fact, if you ever see the first episode of it, uh, which takes place at the Toronto Union Station, um, appears as uh, the hostage for this uh, crazed gunman, and they've gone on to produce two other series, which I don't know much about, can't talk about. Uh, but uh, you know, here you have two itinerant actors who came up with a really good idea, sold it, and went on to make gads of money from this, you know, and I couldn't be more proud of Stephanie. I I knew when I first met her, you know, you're real smart, and you're much more than an actor. Uh, She's gone on to prove that. But uh, one other interesting bit of trivia that I found in the book, and you you mentioned uh, Terry Hawks, how her father was an MP, apparently in in Calgary and I, I did a little research and apparently he was uh he was the guy who lost to Stephen Harper back in like 1993 uh in the the in the old Calgary West uh riding which I just thought was like that's a very interesting piece of Canadiana trivia right there I didn't know that but uh, you know that doesn't surprise me because that you know the hot family are are quite uh, quite astonishing her brother is a litigator um, you know, and also you might have read in the book that uh, Terry Hawks and uh, Tracy Moore did work a lot together mm-hmm. in theater in Calgary. Yep. So uh, back to to conventions. I, I know you mentioned in the book also you've had a lot of interesting conversations with with fans over the years. Like, what kinds of stories would you hear from fans? Like, was there any were there any kind of discernible difference between like a Canadian fan or an American fan, or was there whether or, or did their passion just completely kind of blindside those details? Well, one story I've heard over and over again is, "Thank you, you made my childhood worth mm-hmm. living." Uh, and you know, I whenever I hear that, it makes me want to break down and cry uh, because I would never ever have imagined uh, that this show would have such an impact on it. As I, again, I teach a, a course at Niagara College here in Welland, and as soon as the students find out that I was associated with Sailor Moon, instant respect. A, a lot a lot more attention is paid to the things I have to say uh, just because of that. And to think it's crazy, this was like more than 20 years ago, uh, 
and uh, you know if they didn't want the show um, their parents did and so I have some students coming into my class with a book saying could you autograph this for my parents hmm. so it's you know people I am so lucky that I got this opportunity because it has changed my life in so many ways so just to sort of bring things together uh, Emily uh, you have you you've you've been running the Sailor Moon celebration for two years now, which is in um, Toronto. From your pers- I don't know how long exactly you've been going to the different the different cons around there, but uh, how how have you found uh, from as far back as you can remember what kind of um, role that the the sort of local Sailor Moon community in that area has has shaped uh, the various conventions that have popped up in the Toronto area over the years. When I first got into Sailor Moon, it was sort of underground. Uh, it, it was something that you know, I made certain friends with, but other people were less like, oh, that's a kid's show. I don't really want to get into that. Then as I started to get into things like doing panels, um, that's where I really started to see more specifically the, the Sailor Moon fandom. And then I got involved with Moon Chase um, and writing uh, about Sailor Moon and following, uh, mostly I was following the the English cast and where were they now and uh, what kinds of things were they involved in and where could people see the other work that they were doing and where could they meet them in person and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I didn't really get a, a huge sense of how big the Sailor Moon fandom is in Toronto until I decided to see if there was enough interest to actually run an event that was specifically for Sailor Moon fans. So that, that, that event, it was initially for the International Sailor Moon Day. Uh, yes. What, uh, what, uh, I'm kind of curious, what is the deal with that? <laughs> so Inter- International Sailor Moon Day was uh, was created uh, by a lady in, in New York, Um and her name is Lisa, and uh, and she had, I think, in 2014, she had run something that was just in New York, and uh, it sounded like it was a little bit more of an online thing. And then in 2015, she decided that she wanted to kind of reach out to other people and say, "Hey, let's all do a Sailor Moon event on the same day." Um, mostly, she was telling people to uh, try to do something a little bit more casual, more like a meetup, just because that would be easier to to run. Um, And I came across that someone was interested in running something in Toronto and, uh, and her name was Abby and and I reached out to her and I said, Hey, would you like some help? You know, I'm, I'm affiliated with Moon Chase. I've been doing a lot of Sailor Moon stuff for a long time. Um, I'm interested in being involved and she was open to it. And, uh, and we talked for a little while and then eventually she decided that she would um, investigate the possibility of, of doing a picnic um, at a Toronto park. And I said that I was going to look into discount tickets at, at an attraction. And then I contacted the Ontario Science Centre. And almost immediately they said, yeah, for sure, you know, bring people here. We'd love to have them. And um, and so I secured this discount code. And, um, and then Abby decided to um, also get a, a permit to have a picnic at the center island last yeah, year. Yeah, there were yeah there were two 
kind of events that splintered off from this. Uh, the yeah. other one, interestingly, there is a there was a Vice article written about it. Uh, it was called "I Went to an International Sailor Moon Day Event and I'm Scared for the Future," and it basically just dwells on how big of a flop it was and how only like a handful of people showed up. Um, because yeah. I understand you need to take a ferry to get to that specific place. But... Yeah, that's part of the problem <laughs> with Center Island and trying to run things there. Um, and they're actually also really restrictive. They don't really let you put up signs and, and, and de- decorations and other things. But uh, but on the flip side, uh, your event, which I think happened about a month later, you had you managed to get lots of guests. Like uh, Roland, I believe, was one guest there last yes. year and some of the voice actors. And it seemed to have been, been much more successful. And it, it seems to be a bigger deal. Uh, than most of the other international Sailor Moon events, which are, are mostly just meetups. Yeah, yeah. So uh, w- what I got from it was that, you know, I, I actually ended up, uh, you know, once I had gotten this discount code, I, I was encouraged by um, another convention organizer to um, kind of test the waters and see if people were interested in a Sailor Moon convention. And so I said, okay. Um, and uh, I had started really, you know, more planning it as a convention style event, um, in the July and, um, and we didn't have enough funds built up to be able to afford everything, um, for the August date. So I ended up delaying it. Um, and most people were supportive and understanding. A few people were upset and, and I understand that, you know, it's, it's disappointing to have it delayed like that. Um, but, I had two choices, either delay the event or cancel it. And I decided to delay because I wanted to put on a good show and, and see if this was something that, that would resonate with people. And, um, and so that gave me more time to plan. Um, so all in all, I basically had a, a couple of months or so to, to plan it. And, um, it was basically every spare moment I had, I was working on something for it. And I was contacting as many voice actors as I knew as possible who were local and seeing if they were interested in coming. Um, and we, we had Roland there and we had Susan Roman and we had Tony Daniels and we had Ron Rubin and Jill Frappier. And we tried to have a variety of things going. Um, it was a small crowd, um, but I was very lucky in that, you know, the, the headcount that we ended up having, including our attendees, guests, sellers, and and my staff and, and volunteers ended up being 180 people and, and I broke even and uh, that's almost unheard of with a new convention to, to break especially even. one that's focused <laughs> that is specifically focused on one series and on that note uh, Roland just to sort of pull you back in so I know you 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 were at the event last year I know you've been to a few conventions over the years how, how did you find the experience of going to one that was all specifically focused on just Sailor Moon well, I'd like to say that Emily is a very smart woman, uh, very creative, and hey, she ain't bad looking either. Um, and I think, well, probably the most successful one we had uh, was a couple of years ago in Toronto, and we had almost the whole cast, uh, the lead cast there, which included uh, Ron Rubin, Terry Hawk. Susan Roman, uh, Miss Griffin, uh, myself, Jew, uh, Jill Frappier, and that was that was a knockout, and that was really well organized. Uh, you know, we were they had a great MC for that whole thing, and we were introduced individually. 
I had a bunch of my students from Niagara College bust in from uh, from Niagara. That was just, and there's a video of that, but that, that was spectacular. But Emily's conventions have always been really well organized, really well conducted, just a piece of art. Uh, and my hat's off to, to Emily for all the very dedicated and hard work that she did. I was at a recent one in uh, Niagara Falls in March, I think it was, the Geek Convention or something like that. It wasn't really well attended, uh, but the people that were there uh, were just like, really? You're the guy? And um, I sold a couple of books out there. Um, and interestingly, the organizer was one of my ex-students from uh, Niagara College, Sarah Tellier, uh, who organized this whole thing. And she also did a recording, and she's done a, a podcast of, of that interview. Uh, Toby Proctor was also there. But, you know, any time I get the chance <clears throat> excuse me, to, to go to these things, it's always a rush, you know, because... You know, the people you meet know more about you than you know about them a whole lot. Well, you know nothing about them, um, but they know a whole lot about you, and they can cite you uh, episodes word by word. Uh, it's, it's, you know, how can you not be happy when you go in front of a bunch of think you're a great guy? which none of my ex-wives <laughs> Just on the note of, of interacting with fans, you mentioned one interesting thing near the end of your book. Uh, I, I wasn't really clear on why this was, but the implication seemed to be that um, when production of Sailor Moon resumed a few years after the initial 65 episodes, you were not asked to return as director. And the implication seemed to be that that had something to do with your activity in conventions. Um I'm just kind of curious what kind of the story was behind that or what you were sort of uh, alluding to. Well, we had, uh, shortly after the wrap of uh, Sailor Moon, we had lunch at uh, Jill Frappier's house uh, with Nicole, myself, a couple other people. And uh, Jill's husband had videotaped our uh, con in uh, Ottawa at the there. And Jill showed this uh, to Nicole, thinking that she would be really thrilled to see that you know, we were doing all this stuff to promote the show. But Nicole, not at all happy, uh, because as producer, they want to keep control of everything. And we, I did this on my own as a rebel, uh, you know, thinking, well, they should be very happy because we're doing the show. That was not the case. Uh, shortly thereafter, I had lent Nicole. She said, you're not going to be directing further. She said, I have other shows that I, I can direct, which she did, uh, but that was it. And that's when they brought in John Stocker uh, to direct the rest of his uh, experience. wasn't all that good either, from what I understand there, so no. So that was kind of it. You know, you're out and John's in. That That's kind of amazing because that's like the complete opposite of how just about any company would handle fandom in, in this, in the modern environment. I don't know their reasoning behind yeah. it. You know, I think it's, I don't know, is it ego having the necessity, necessity to be in control of all things connected with the series? You know, Deke never had anything to say about that. Uh, it was Nicole. Oh. 
Yeah, that's 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 really strange and, and ironic, given that in Toronto, at least, uh, the the uh, importance of Sailor Moon has escalated to a point where it can sustain its own event, at least for uh, at least for a couple of years in a row. Um, and that you would lose the job over or that particular job over over doing the very thing that the all these companies thrive off of today. I mean, like Comic Cons and fan expos. I mean, they're 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 basically vehicles for promotion these days, more so than than uh, you know allowing creators to to get in touch with fans. At least in my opinion. <laughs> well, that was then, and this is now. Um, I don't think anybody at the time in in the 1990s understood the importance of these things. Uh, all they did understand was, I control this, you don't, you don't do anything independently, uh, you clear things through me. Uh, and it was, uh, well, quite frankly, a stupid move on Nicole's part, because if they had gotten behind this whole thing, uh, it could be even bigger than it that it has been and is to this day, you know. But uh, hey, that's the way. But well, we do know the, that's similar to the argument made by that other guy from Deke who wrote a Sailor Moon book. But maybe we won't get into that guy. No, I, you know, and I, I've heard about this <laughs> yeah. book, and apparently he was on the executive committee or something connected to do with Deke and published his books, and it was another one of those behind-the-scene things. Have you read the book? Oh no, I have not read that one. I have read stuff that that guy has written, and based on what I have read that he's posted on on websites that let him write things for some reason, I don't have no interest in reading that book at all. He did actually have like a couple of uh, sample chapters on his oh, YouTube channel. Oh, really? Channel that you could go and listen. Oh, so to he nar- he just... narrates it on his YouTube channel. Yeah, he he narrates it on his <laughs> YouTube channel, and it it sounds pretty much as as what you would expect. Uh, <laughs> It, is, it reads like an essay, and it's just kind of like Sailor Moon is the best thing ever, and we all need to recognize that Sailor Moon is the best thing ever, and that it influenced other things, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but we already all know that. I, yeah, it, What's the new information? He keeps making these bizarre arguments, like Sailor Moon could have been the ne- like as big as Spider-Man, which is I, – I, I'm not even getting into what kind of – like what things he's overlooking with with an argument like that. Um, there were also things that he claimed were influenced by Sailor Moon that actually were not, yeah. um, because the timing is not at all correct for that to have been true. <laughs> um, and you, you know, like you you can't go and say you know like Starcraft was influenced by Sailor Moon because <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but the Queen of Blades is very much nothing like sa- anything in Sailor Moon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was that one Yamato reference in StarCraft, but... Um, yeah, I cannot believe that the Mary Sue gave that guy a platform. But uh, but anyway, uh, so, uh, Roland, I did have, just kind of relating to something you brought up in the in the last answer, um, I know you did still reprise the role of Melvin, uh, even in those episodes you did not direct. Um, did you have anything to say about... Uh, working under John Stalker in that in that sort of time period, or I I I think I know Melvin had a much smaller role in those episodes, so I don't know how much time you would have have spent involved in that. Well, <laughs> there was an interesting thing that occurred uh, during my first session with John as director, um, and so I, I went to the studio. I did did my lines, and then I came out and I said to John. 
so uh, here's the new Sailor Moon. And uh, I could see Nicole dig him in the knee, and she just said, Roland, uh, you go now, uh, because she didn't want any information about this leaked to me. And it was a fairly innocent question. As it turned out, it was one of my ex-students from Ryerson University, Linda, Linda, oh. Linda Ballantyne. Linda Ballantyne. Um, and then, then, you know, I, I got home and I was with my mate at the time and I told her about this. She said, you should have, uh, kicked her another time. It would give you the answer. So, uh, you know, I was obviously, uh, persona non grata. At that oh, point, dear. it was just like, no, you've done your thing, you signed your contract, go, and let us carry on. But, you know, there, there are other uh, YouTube videos with John at various conventions where, well, you get the real story from him, um, that he got fired because he was too nice to the actor. Hmm. Well, uh... I think, I think, I think you can get, I think you could weave quite a few interesting stories from, uh, from all the different perspectives going on, uh, behind the scenes there. Before we finish, uh, would, uh, Roland, would you like to talk about some of your, uh, other projects you're working on? Ah, uh, sure. Um, I'm in the midst of writing two additional books. One is called Jake Pope. It's sci-fi. It has to do with the uh, struggle between the good universe and the bad universe. Uh, one of the from the bad universe crosses to the good universe and creates havoc. Uh, then the third book I'm working on uh, is called Creativity, and it's about the corruption colleges and universities, mm-hmm. which I've got a lot of knowledge about. Well, as someone who's just completing graduate school, I can, I can confirm that it's all basically a giant pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is that the whole... All these joints are run by bean counters. They don't give a shit about the students. All they want is their money. You know, uh, like our our program, the acting program at Niagara College creates $800,000, of which $500,000 goes in the fund. We get $300,000 to finance our program, and it needs more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're the tall foreheads, and we're just out there... Doing the teach. Yeah, there's definitely an irony behind it all. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, to finish off, Emily, uh, just this past weekend was your second Sailor Moon celebration. Uh, how did it go overall? It was great. Um, I got a lot of positive feedback. Our in, our attendance actually increased um, a significant amount. Uh, we more than tripled uh, last year's numbers. Um, so I'm very pleased with that. We dealt with a lot of things very efficiently and smoothly and, um, things that we weren't able to really fix the best way possible. We did what we could and, um, I'm very proud of my team and I'm very proud of, of how everything turned out. And I look forward to putting on an even bigger and better event next year. As someone who lives in Vancouver, I don't say this very often, but say like a Sailor Moon convention uh at least outside of asia if that were to happen in any city like it it has to be toronto to have like a major event like that yeah it i I think you know right now it with the old cast especially you know toronto is is an ideal place for it to happen with the new cast i think there's a possibility for it in in la um but uh, that remains to be seen Uh, i mean that raises the question (laughs) like actually what we talked about in the other half of the podcast i mean has 
has has Sailor Moon kind of lost its Canadianness, or is uh, or is that trait still kind of kind of uh, kind of important to it? The English localization, at least. Well, I, I think when it comes to the original dubbing, um, that that still resonates a lot with with Canadian fans and, and especially Tor- Torontonian fans. Um, so we see a significant amount of interest here. Well, I think that's about uh, everything for this episode. So. Uh, thank you both so much for coming on. It was a, a great conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here and talk about this and, you know, uh, reveal maybe some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I don't know. Yeah, that's great. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Zonan Canada. Big thanks to everyone who came on the show this time around. Also a shout-out to Brittany Chisholm, who wasn't able to make it due to a scheduling conflict. The theme song is by Ultraclystron. You can purchase it as part of his album Packet Flood at ultraclystron.com. You can reach me through Twitter, at Canada or email zonincanada at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice. As always, please recommend this show to anyone you think might be interested. See you again. Can't go wrong.